You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Scott, thank you very much. I'm Tyler Matheson. In for Kelly Evans today. Here's what's ahead. There was enough magic in Disney's report for Needham's Laura Martin to finally become a buyer. It's been years. She's back with what did it and where she sees the stock moving from here. Plus, the S&P may be nearing a record, but there are plenty of beaten down parts in the market, especially in the value trade. That's where one of our guests is bargain hunting these days, and he brings his favorites, which include some regional bank names. And if you hadn't heard of Zins, your teenager probably has. Mine did when I asked him about it this morning. It's Philip Morris's fastest-growing tobacco-free product. A lot of nicotine in it. We'll look at the potential upside for the stock because of it and the health concerns that are out there surrounding it. But we begin with today's markets and Dom Chu, who's got the numbers. Hey, Dom. All right, we're still on that S&P 500, 5,000 watch. And we currently stand at 49.90 for that large cap, broader based index. Remember the record high that we did see intraday yesterday, uh, just to put it up there again for the record, was 49.99. So yes, just one point and even less so than that short of that $5,000 psychological mark. Today, just about flat down about four points right now. We were up two at the highs of the session there and down roughly eight points at the low. So again, a very tight range, an area of consolidation traders trying to figure out what that next leg is going to be. The Dow Industrials, by the way, down about two-tenths of 1%, 38,621. And the Nasdaq Composite outperforming up just two-tenths of 1% to 15,782. That's the current state of play on a macro level. Let's take a look at one of the names that's getting a lot of attention. Not an S&P 500 stock, but Arm Holdings. Remember, back in September of last year, big, hyped-up trade. The IPO price, remember, at that point was $51 per share. We're currently trading at 121.73, a massive move higher in today's session so far, up 58 points on the heels of better-than-expected earnings. Also, a good forecast out of them. AI driving a lot of demand, so keep an eye on Arm Holdings. And then I'm going to put a slate of stocks up that don't have a lot of things in connection with each other specifically, but I'm going to point them out. Microsoft and NVIDIA, but they're both down fractionally right now. Marriott International on the consumer side, American Express on the financial side, and then Waste Management, all kind of treading some water up fractionally. But every one of these stocks made a record high in trading today. One of about 31 stocks that all made a record high. I'm putting up Waste Management out there, Tyler, because you and I, I know, we're golf fans And, of course, across NBC Sports, Golf Channel, and Peacock throughout the course of today and this weekend, it is the People's Open, the Waste Management Phoenix (laughs) Open that's being televised. So I'm going to put Waste Management up there, a record high in today's intraday session. Also, the big People's Open tie. I'll send things back over. A fun and rowdy event, if ever there was one. I think Nick Saban, the former uh, Alabama coach, is actually playing in uh, the Pro-Am there. A host of celebrities, Ty. Host of celebrities. Fantastic. Wish you were there. I know you do. (laughs) All right. Dom Dom Chu. Another big mover in today's session is Disney, up 12%, following better than expected earnings. And that report finally made our next guest a buyer after having had a hold on the stock for the past five years. Needham's Laura Martin joins us now with Why Now? Hi, Laura. Good to have you with us. Nice to see you. How are you, Tyler? Uh, Fantastic. You are always clear and to the point. So get there on why you switched your view on Disney and have now become a buyer. Three key points. One, their cost savings is going to be above $7.5 billion. Two, streaming lowered the loss by $300 million in the last 90 days. 
and buy 800 million year over year, and they're going to hit profitability in about six months. And then they said over the next three years, they're going to add about a billion dollars of operating income per year extra, which means it basically offsets all the linear operating income decline. So we're going to have really structurally growing EPS here for the first time what, in a long time. What have they done right in the streaming area that's going to put them that puts them on the path to profitability or free cash flow uh, profitability uh, by later this year? What have they done? Price rise, prices raised last October. They're going to do password sharing crackdown just following in Netflix footsteps. They've done a deal with Charter where suddenly they're going to add like 7 million new charter subscribers in the current quarter we're in now, which is the March quarter. And they said they probably are going to do similar deals with Comcast and with Altice, which actually not only grows revenue, but it also lowers churn. So, so all of those things really help. And they've cut content costs a lot because this company was overproducing content, as were all the streamers. So Netflix is profitable today. Disney's about to be the second profitable um, a streaming company. Let's talk about the, the news from earlier this week, and that is the sports joint venture with Warner Brothers and Fox. What does this do, and what does it signal about the business? So I think what it says is that, um, as you probably know, both Fox and Warner do not have any of their linear sports um, channels on a streaming service. So Disney is going to be sort of the anchor tenant because it has some of its channels on ESPN Plus already. And it's going to have this new, uh, we think they represent about 70% of total sort of U.S. premium sports. So it's going to allow sports enthusiasts to turn off and turn on for seasons at a time because you can turn off every month. You're not locked into a one-year contract and have a lot of sports streaming, which a lot of young consumers prefer streaming to they don't want a linear TV bundle. Yeah, and 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 you you talked a moment ago about deals that they're going to do or have done with Charter. You expect something with Comcast. Are these traditional linear bundle deals or streaming deals with those companies? So the way Charter's deal works is, if they launch an ESPN app, it becomes part of the Charter bundle. So Charter isn't disadvantaged. But for that, they got ubiquitous. They got a fee. For every charter subscriber like overnight so mm -hmm. that's why they're adding seven million subscribers on this premium tier for charter sort of overnight at a wholesale rate so it's a discounted rate compared to what you and i pay but that's still a good deal because you get the revenue like overnight sort of in perpetuity because those people don't churn how uh, talk to me a little bit about this epic games deal that that was announced a billion and a half dollars what does that do for disney I think traditionally what's been the best thing about Disney is they find, they target kids and they sort of try to bring you into their princess environment or into the Toy Story environment when you're six, seven, eight. And then they try to hold on to you and create a lifetime value of, of consumer products and film and television subscriptions over your life. They are losing that as video games get more popular. Mm -hmm. The predominantly the predominantly viewing done by young men, 15 to 25, is on video games. So this is their play. They gave a they bought 1.5 billion of equity in Epic Games, which is the Fortnite creator. They're going to Fortnite will create a Disney universe for them, and so they have a competent game video game maker now as a partner to sort of take some of their IP and put it in the video game universe to try to grab young men. Let's talk a little bit about the parks business. Uh, take me through that. I think, of, I think of that as the real sort of anchor of Disney's business. W what's happening there? How are they going to get growth there? They've raised prices a lot. I, I can't imagine they can send them that much higher in this environment, but maybe they can. 
So let's split it between domestic parks and offshore parks. So domestic parks, you're exactly right. Sort of flat attendance, per capita spending up about 4%, sort of pretty mediocre. But what's really growing right now and what drove, what drove uh, parks operating income to its highest level ever is um, international. Mm -hmm. Shanghai and Hong Kong both have new worlds that just opened, Zootopia and Frozen. So they're getting record attendance. And as you know, Shanghai just recently opened in China. So the international park segment is really driving growth of parks to record levels of, of profit. Inter interesting. Laura Martin, thank you for being with us today. We appreciate it. As always, good to see you. Thank you. All right, 30-year uh, bonds up for auction. Rick Santelli tracking the action at CME. Hey, Rick. Hi, Tyler. Wow, uh, what a week of auctions. Today was the final auction, 25 billion 30-year bonds, completing 121 billion of coupon supply in the form of threes, tens, and 30-year maturities. Today's auction of 25 billion 30-year bonds garnered a yield of 4.36. We always talk about tailing. Tailing's bad. This was on the screws, which is exactly the opposite. It stopped through by two basis points. I can't tell you how aggressive that is. So if 438 is the one issue market, this came in at 4.36. Lower yield, higher price. The government's selling. Higher prices are good when you're a seller. Now, two basis points is very large historically because if you go through all the other metrics, the bid to cover exactly 10 auction average indirect bidders, well, uh, that was the best since June of last year. But here's the flies in the ointment. 14.5 directs, that's the lightest since August of 2020. Those are direct bidders are like uh, pension funds, large domestic institutions, hedgies, and the dealers took 14.8, a little bit more than the 10 auction average. But even those can't take away the fact that a minus is the grade. Pricing was very aggressive on a day where interest rates were up. And maybe the most important issue of all, 441 is the high yield close for 30-year bonds for all of 2024 thus far. Keep a close eye on that level because should we start to get near that, look for a good deal of selling despite the fact that the auction went so well. Tyler. 441 is the number to watch, and there you see it at 435 on the 30-year. Rick Santelli, thanks very much. Let's turn to Ari Wald, head of technical analysis at Oppenheimer. Ari, you think rates are finding a floor here? Tell us what you see the bond market telling us. Sure. Yeah, I think rates are finding a floor, and I think that's going to be the action going forward, uh, the, the stability in the bond market that really should support equity prices looking ahead against this not-too-hot uh, not too cold backdrop. Um, I, I think generally, you know, not being an economist, I don't think the Fed is in a hurry to cut interest rates for the very reason that the reason seems not. Yeah. Yeah. They want to avoid that 1970s scenario, which when they did cut too quickly. So I think the market is rallying and with those expectations and think that's historically consistent and be careful what you ask for. I think by the time they actually do cut rates, we could be closer to that market top. Let's talk about uh, the, uh, your, your view is that the S&P is undervalued below 5,400. We're basically at 5,000 now, 49.90. Uh, where do you think the, the S&P heads from here? Up. We'd like that 5,400 level yep. there by year end. Um, so yeah, round number 5,000, I, I think we achieved 5,000 in a very bullish manner. The index's weekly RSI has reached a level of 73 that often discussed as being What is RSI for those who don't know? Like it's me. a measure of the speed of price. Now, a lot of commentators come here to talk about it being overbought. It's really just indicating that price is accelerating. 
Uh, we found that only 35% of major tops have occurred with an RSI above 70. That number drops to 4% uh, when you're above 75. So the higher the RSI, the less likely uh, we get a market top. Year two of the bull market uh, underway, 70% of cycles have reached the two-year anniversary. That's why we think it continues uh, through year end. 5,400 would be on par uh, with typical well, year two historic gains, gains in, in a second year of, of a bull market. That's why right. don't we move on to a couple of um, uh, individual stocks that I know you want to uh, share your views on, uh, beginning with Take Two uh, out after the bell. The key with Take Two is really the leadership that we've seen in the growth factor overall. It's been a broad-based theme. It's large cap growth, mid-cap growth, small cap growth. Uh, and Take Two, what's notable about the chart, it is – uh, one of the broadening list of stocks that continue to move higher above the December high. Uh, a lot has been made about moderating market breadth. Take two has bucked that trend. It's continued to push higher. It continues to show relative strength. It continues to retrace the stark losses suffered between 2021 and 2022, and we think that continues over the coming Affirm months. Affirm is your next is on next on your list. This has been a very hot stock. Been hot. The whole industry's been hot. The whole it's, industry's been hot. Do you think it stays that way? Yeah, I like those broad-based themes. FinTech overall, here's a stock that More really than ex- doubling in the past three months. If you, it, it really surged in the fourth quarter. And what it did, it moved above its peak level from August of 2022. It's been consolidating and working off those excesses by going sideways above that breakout. Very often, former resistance becomes support, and we think that larger breakout continues looking ahead. Let's move on to uh, First Energy uh, and get your thoughts there. What are the headwinds there? So you got a buy on a firm, by the way. So uh, we're long, yep, buy the growth names, take two in a firm, and sell defensives. Uh, we are bearish on defensive sectors here. I think it really represents utilities, counter-cyclical defensive overall. All these stocks in the sector look like that. Multi-year relative lows, first energy failing at its bearish 200-day average. We see that as a potential resumption of the stock's ongoing downtrend. And this HB6 scandal, explain what that is. You think it's getting past that, the company's getting past that? Not a utility uh, analyst. I don't cover the stock. I'm just looking at the themes across the board. Very right. weak relative action. All right. So you got to sell on that one. We do. Yeah. All right. Underweight sector. Ari, thanks very much. Thank Appreciate you. it. Good to have you with yeah. us. All right, folks, coming up, Capitol Hill is uh, picking a new battle against big tobacco. But should the blame be directed at the maker of these Zinn nicotine pouches or the social media platforms? where they are becoming ever more popular. We'll debate that. Plus, former NFL linebacker turned UPenn professor Brandon Copeland will join us on his new initiative to tackle financial literacy. The Exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back, everybody. Shares of Philip Morris lower after missing on earnings and issuing some uh, disappointing full-year earnings guidance. One bright spot, though, is the growth of its Zinn nicotine pouch. U.S. shipments grew more than 78% from a year ago. Philip Morris acquired the company behind Zinn, that is Swedish Match, in late 2022 as part of its push to replace cigarettes with less harmful nicotine-delivering alternatives. And while you may have never heard of Zen, it has become a phenomenon on social media, with 31,000 posts tagged on TikTok alone. They've become so popular, there are now so-called Zinfluencers, with some videos racking up millions of views, enough to catch the eye of Senator Chuck Schumer. The Democrat from New York calling it a pouch packed with problems. 
just for alliteration, and urging federal investigations into Zinn's marketing and health effects. The CEO of Philip Morris International addressed some of those concerns on CNBC earlier today. There are some conversations taking, uh, taking place, especially in the social media space, and I always want to be very careful because one is having the conversations among adults, but we also have to be very careful. People underage may follow these conversations and we don't want to send the wrong impressions or wrong signals today to them. These products are helping a lot of smokers in the U.S. and very much on the international. All right, here to discuss those potential risks is Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner and a CNBC contributor. But first, let's dig into what Zinn's explosive growth means for Philip Morris uh, with Stiefel's Matt Smith. Matt, welcome. Good to have you with us. We'll begin there and get to Dr. Gottlieb in a moment. Uh, you have a buy on the stock of Philip Morris International, uh, despite what some char are characterizing as a somewhat soggy earnings report, a little bit disappointing. But uh, I think a lot of those disappointments center around uh, FX, foreign exchange, correct? Yes, Tyler, thanks for having me on. So you're right to point out FX. It was a significant headwind in this past 2023, but we are turning the page on that. The FX headwind projected in 2024 is, is much less burdensome, just a low single-digit headwind to earnings growth. I think the key takeaway here in the 2024 outlook is that it calls for another year of robust growth that's benefiting from the company's smoke-free transformation that's supported by continued momentum in the smoke-free portfolio that's anchored by both Icos and heated tobacco and Zinn in oral tobacco and, and a fairly resilient performance in the combustible business. When you say heated tobacco, what, is that, what does that mean? And Icos, you need to explain to our, our viewers what those two segments, which are growing, uh, are doing. What are they? Yeah, so Icos is Philip Morris's flagship heated tobacco brand. This is a inhalable uh, product that delivers nicotine to the user with substantially fewer exposure to harmful constituents within traditional cigarette smoke. This is a product that was introduced into Japan over 10 years ago. It's been growing robustly in international markets, and the company is just now at the stage where it can begin to introduce it in the United States. They're going to have some, uh, a test launch in a specific city in 2024, and they are waiting on FDA authorization for a more updated version of the device before a more, more fulsome rollout, which we believe will occur in 2025. It's a tobacco product, in other words, it, it, then it is not uh, like the vaping products, really a liquefied uh, form of nicotine. Am I right on that? That's right, Tyler. It is a tobacco product. The, the, the actual consumable portion of the device, that, that, uh, what, what's called a heat stick, that, that is heated to vaporize the nicotine and the, and the taste, um, does contain tobacco. But the, the product is heated and not combusted. And the combustion portion of smoking a cigarette is where many of the harmful constituents are formed. This heated technology has been shown scientifically to reduce a user's exposure to the harmful constituents. In fact, FDA has authorized a version of this product 
to be marketed as a modified risk tobacco product, one mm -hmm. of the very few products in the United States to get that authorization from FDA. So that is an, is an inhalable product with uh, tobacco as uh, the, the origin, I suppose, of the nicotine. The Zin product, which has, take us through some of the growth metrics on this. It was not something I had heard of until our producers told me about it yesterday. I asked my 18-year-old, he ever heard of it? He said, absolutely, he's heard of it. Tell me what it is, how it works, and is it more benign in terms of health effects, or do we know whether it is benign, more benign or not than tobacco-based products? This is, this is a nicotine pouch that you put into your mouth. That's correct. It is a, a nicotine oral tobacco product. It does not contain... Uh, I'm sorry, oral nicotine product. It does not contain tobacco. These products were introduced into the United States over 10 years ago, but we've seen explosive growth over the last three years with consumers really understanding the benefits of the convenience of the product and potentially the harm reduction, especially for U.S. smokers that are converting to using Zin for, uh, to, to, to um, uh, fulfill their nicotine needs. Uh, the, the, the category is growing very strongly. Zinn is by far the market share leader in the category. It holds over a 75% a volume share in the United States. How important is it to the, to the company's bottom line, and how important will it be uh, if growth continues the way it has been, which is really exponential? Yeah, so Zinn is a growing importance to Philip Morris's bottom line. The product is significantly... Uh, mix accretive both to the top line as well as to profit given the economics of the U.S. market. The U.S. nicotine market is a very profitable market. Philip Morris participates that, uh, into that market today through Zinn nicotine pouches. And then in addition to the importance of the actual Zinn product, the, the infrastructure that it acquired with Swedish Match and the investments that it's made since that acquisition will provide the backbone for Philip Morris to launch that Icos heated tobacco product into the United States once it is FDA authorized. All right, Matt, thank you for your uh, background on this and, and uh, your thoughts about Philip Morris. We appreciate it. Matt Smith. All right, let's uh, turn now to Dr. Scott Gottlieb to address the health concerns about Zen. And Dr. Gottlieb, you say that at this point, the risks may be more about what the social media companies are not doing and with what Philip Morris is doing. In other words, you think that those social media platforms bear a responsibility for this product's growth among underaged users, and underaged in this case means 21 and younger, correct? Well, that's right. I think the social media platforms could be doing much more. This is sort of an organic uh, movement that started on social media and is being targeted to young people, and the platforms could step in to try to police and shut down some of this messaging. I know Philip Morris has reached out to some of the platforms and has gotten back form letters. You know, we need to restart the conversation around harm reduction in this country, just picking up on your last conversation. While nicotine, not a completely safe substance, isn't what causes all the death and disease from tobacco. It's the products of combustion. And if we can convert more currently addicted adult smokers onto these modified risk products, that don't have all the harms associated with combustion, we can achieve a net public health benefit, a substantial public health benefit. There's currently 28 million Americans who still smoke cigarettes um, while rates of smoking have come down 
in recent years, the rate of reduction has slowed. And I think the way we're going to make substantial inroads in reducing those numbers even further is trying to offer adult smokers products that don't pose the same risks as cigarettes for those who still want to enjoy satisfying levels of nicotine but don't want to do it with all the harms that come with combusting cigarettes. So I guess as I wrap, try to wrap my head around the, the sort of moral questions that are posed by a product like Zen, I come, come to this and I'd like to get you to help me through it. Uh, that, that Zinn can be a transitional product, in a sense, away from combustible smoking tobacco products towards Zinn, which is purely um, a nicotine product. On the other hand, can Zinn be a transitional product that leads a young user of Zinn toward uh, a tobacco product? In other words, it could, could, cut, could it cut Absolutely. both ways. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we saw happen with Juul. And that's the concern around Zinn, that it will addict a new generation of young people onto nicotine, some proportion of which will migrate onto combustible tobacco. That it's a gateway. And set us back. It's a gateway. Uh, that's why you, right. But that's why you need appropriate regulation in the marketplace and have to put these products through an appropriate series of regulatory gates. There's currently 600,000 applications pending with FDA for different tobacco products. I would be prioritizing some of these modified risk tobacco products to get them approved by the FDA, which would give the agency more vigorous post-market tools to make sure that the marketing and the positioning in the marketplace is appropriate and isn't going to lead to a lot of unnecessary youth use. You're always going to have some youth use. Any youth use is too much. Um, the rates right now are relatively low. I think you know, legislators and others are right to be vigilant here to make sure this doesn't become another jewel. It's on the order of about 1.5% of youth use is mm -hmm. of these kind of pouch products. But, you know, there is a role for these products being marketed to adult smokers. And I think properly regulated, you can put in place restrictions that keep it out of the hands of kids. You're also going to have to rely on the social media platforms. They need to do more. And it's not just these Zinn products and tobacco products. It's also THC products that are being marketed to children as well on these platforms. If you go on and look at the advertising. So that's fair. I find it I, it's very interesting that you point to the social media platforms as the... Um I don't know. I guess not the pushers. That's too strong a word here. But but in other words, that they have been less responsible, it seems you're saying, than Philip Morris has been in in uh, in trying to police or um, restrict the use by youth of this product. Zin. Well, look, this is a relatively new phenomenon by some self winding um, people on social media, some mm -hmm. social influencers. Mm -hmm. We've seen historically the social media platforms, for example, step in to cut down or crack down on the marketing of opioids years ago. And we were we browbeat them into doing that. They were reluctant to do that. I was at FDA at the time. Uh, they could do the same thing here. They can put in place controls that filter out these messages to children. Um, I don't think Philip Morris wants this to be marketed to kids and wants to see the youth use rise because it's going to spoil the market for adult smokers and adults who still want to access nicotine aren't necessarily necessarily smokers, but want to enjoy nicotine, don't want to do it through products of combustion. It is, after all, legal substance. And as long as it remains a legal substance, adults are going to seek it out. Some proportion of adults will seek it out. They're better off doing it with a product like this or even a vaping product than a mm -hmm. cigarette, because, again, yeah. it's the products of combustion, the burning that causes all the death and disease. Fascinating conversation, Dr. Gottlieb. Appreciate it. As always, uh, glad to have you with us. Thank you.
All right, coming up, uh, this tech name tops the newest Just 100 list, despite most of its tech peers falling in the ranks. We'll reveal it and the most important issues in the survey. That is next. CNBC and Just Capital releasing the Just 100 list this week, revealing the corporations performing best on Americans' priorities and a big priority, worker treatment. Hewlett-Packard Enterprise taking the top spot on this year's list. That was the mystery chart we showed you before the break. And there you see it. Kate Rogers here with more. Hi, Kate. Hey, Tyler. Stakeholders prioritized employee issues this year, so those were given the heaviest weighting in the Just 100 ranking. HP, as you mentioned, the top company overall, but number 21 when it comes to worker issues. Of the 20 issues that were rated, there were three key worker-related priorities. Those made up about 42% of the final score. First, paying a fair living wage, the most important issue for the fourth year running. Second, that the company creates jobs in the U.S. And third, that it prioritizes accountability to all stakeholders. Now, it's no surprise to see the American public paying attention to these issues. 2023 was a big year for the labor movement. Nearly half a million workers went on strike last year, according to Cornell University. That's twice the 2022 number. Auto workers, Hollywood actors and writers were among the groups that saw big gains. And labor advocates say that momentum will continue this year. Now, across every demographic just surveyed, politics, race, gender, age and income, Americans were united in wanting companies to prioritize workers as the most important stakeholder. Leading the Just 100 this year in worker issues are Bank of America, Citigroup, NVIDIA, and J.P. Morgan. Now, of course, Tyler, I cover the restaurant sector, and I look specifically for names in that space. The only name in that sector in the Just 100 this year is Starbucks, coming in overall at number 24, ranking 137 in workers' issues. That's out of the 937 Russell 1000 companies that Just Capital surveys for this list. Back Alrighty. over to you. All right. Thank you, Kate. How many of these Just 100 companies have had union activities in recent years, given the focus on workers' rights and maybe the reinvigoration of the uh, union organized labor movement? Certainly. We went through name by name, Tyler. Nearly a dozen companies in the 100 list have had union activity from T-Mobile to Apple to GM to Starbucks, of course, whose workers really kind of kicked off the big labor uprising we saw back in 2021. Uh, nearly 400 cafes are unionized now, but still a drop in the bucket of their 8,000 or so locations in the U.S. But again, labor advocates say this year will continue to be a big one for workers' rights given last year's momentum. And I think that speaks to the trend that workers at these companies are offered competitive benefits, right? on the Just 100 list, but in this environment, many still say they want more. All right. Kate Rogers, thank you. To thank Pippa you. Stevens we go for a CNBC News update. Hi, Pippa. Hey, Tyler. The Supreme Court made it easier for whistleblowers in finance to win lawsuits by rejecting a bid from UBS to impose a higher bar. The court ruled in favor of reinstating a $1.7 million verdict for a former UBS employee who accused the company of firing him in retaliation for refusing to publish misleading reports. The Swiss bank wanted the court to require whistleblowers to prove the company retaliated. Global warming surpassed the critical limit of 1.5 degrees Celsius for the past year. Data from the EU showed last year was 1.52 degrees Celsius hotter on average, faster than the limits set by the Paris Agreement. But some scientists say while the record is a milestone, it doesn't mean efforts to curb warming have failed. And the Court of Arbitration for Sport ruled today that Russian figure skater Kamila Valieva did not meet burden of proof to overturn her four-year competition drug ban. The court dismissed her explanations of a positive drug test at the last Olympics, specifically that it was caused by a strawberry dessert 
her grandfather made. Tyler, I still remember watching her program uh, at the Olympics. It was quite something. Yeah, absolutely. Well, an amazing, uh, an amazing story there, and I guess we'll see what happens ultimately in that case. Thanks, Pippa. All right, coming up, former NFL linebacker turned UPenn professor Brandon Copeland will join us live from Las Vegas ahead of the Big Bowl on Sunday with his new initiative to tackle financial literacy. Brandon Copeland, next. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. We are just three days away from the Super Bowl. Our next guest knows a thing or two about football. He's an NFL linebacker for a decade, multiple teams. And after retiring uh, last year, he's made it his mission to teach people the importance of financial literacy. His new book, Your Money Playbook, How to Earn More, Build Wealth, and Win at Life, is now available for pre-sale. Joining us now from Las Vegas, ahead of the game, is Brandon Copeland, CEO of Athletes.org. Brandon, welcome. Good to have you with us. Great to be here. You, look, you said I know a little bit about football. I don't know too much about the Super Bowl or playing in the Super Bowl, though. So <laughs> it's still good to be here with you, though, Tyler. Well, we'll get your thoughts, uh, Brandon, about the game this weekend and, and whether the big winner is going to be uh, Taylor and Travis or somebody else. Who knows? Uh, but let's talk about financial literacy. I'm curious as to how you and your wife uh, got into this area. What interested you about it? What was the motivation? And uh, then we'll probe into some of the ways you're, you're trying to reach uh, athletes and others. Go ahead. Yeah, I, th I think, you know, I've been extremely fortunate, extremely blessed to be around some amazing people. Um, however, I learned about a lot of financial concepts, either through bad experiences or as a result of being an NFL player. And I just don't think that you should have to make it to the NFL in order to learn about your 401k or what an IRA is or how to invest your money or how to do due diligence. And so uh, for my wife and I, we found ways to try to educate people and really allow people to be a fly on the wall to the conversations that we are privy to. And it's been extremely rewarding, but more importantly, we've helped a lot of people achieve their own financial success and create the lifestyles that they want. Life 101, what is it? How does it work? What do I, how do I get on it? Yeah, so you go to life101.io and ultimately this is a uh, digitized version of the class that I teach at the University of Pennsylvania now. We've taught it for six years and, and basically, I hate to say this publicly, but I was experimenting at Penn so that we could ultimately work with different partners and, and production companies to provide this to the world. And, and again, we've had a lot of success. You can go on there, you can take our class. We condense everything down so that you're getting what you need quick and short form, uh, but we've also tried to make it, we've tried to democratize the access to it. So mm -hmm. literally through that and through partners, we've had hundreds of thousands of people take it at this point, and we're just continuing to grow and get the word out. And what is no money, K-N-O-W, no money? Yeah, yeah, no money, speaking of partnerships, no money is a partnership that I have with Moneyline who wanted to find unique ways to talk about money to people, right? All this whole financial literacy, financial education movement is how do you get more people coming to the table, having a conversation about money? And so No Money is a show that we help produce, help write, help direct, and live studio audience, and it, it really um, talks about money in a very, very unique and interesting way. It's putting me in a totally different, out of my comfort zone, uh, but so far the feedback from people who have watched it have been tremendous. So please check it out, it's on YouTube. Again, it's free and easy, easily and accessible uh, and shared with somebody. Tell me a little bit about athletes.org and whether it is aimed largely or not exclusively, but largely at college athletes 
who now are having to confront financial questions at a much earlier stage as a result of NILs and the transfer portal and the fact that it is now all about money, right? Hey. You're, you're exactly right. It is 100% for college athletes. We are the Players Association for College Athletes. And fortunately, when I came into the NFL, I was fortunate to have a Players Association who advocated for me, helped me maximize my income, amplify my voice, and provided me with on-demand support. And we are just bringing that same model down to college athletes because, as you mentioned, with NIL, college athletes are just going pro sooner. And NIL is just one piece of the pie we believe that college athletes deserve to have a larger share of the pie uh, of the revenue that they help create through games and championship sense, series and a number Brandon, of different things. Brandon, is this in a sense a labor movement? I mean, we heard earlier this week about a, a labor uh, approval for basketball players at Dartmouth. Uh, and, and apparently yes. uh, there's going to be a lot more sort of players association organization around college athletics. Is that what you're a part of? Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So we are the Players Association for College Athletes. We have a very flexible model and infrastructure. And so mm -hmm. we are not a union in total, but by us organizing athletes into chapters based on their sport and their conference. So ACC men's and women's basketball or right. Big East men's basketball and women's basketball. Now those chapters can then become the launch pads for unions if it makes sense for those athletes. Right now, people want to paint a broad paintbrush or, or paint, yeah, a broad stroke on all athletes. But unfortunately, me and the issues I dealt with at an Ivy League school playing football is a little different than the folks playing football at Bama or University of Michigan. And so by us organizing yep. athletes in this way, now we're able to advocate for them uh, for their particular set of quick, issues. Quick thought on who's going to win the, the bowl on Sunday, Kansas City uh, or uh, the other team that will be playing San Francisco. Uh, and then the over under on number of times we'll see it's Taylor Swift. More than six. <laughs> yeah, definitely more than six, especially if Travis Kelsey is balling out there, and I think that the Chiefs will win it. They've just been here before. They have yep. the experience. They're right now executing their Super Bowl process while others are trying to figure it out. And yeah. so having that experience going into a game like this, with all the momentum on the side and with Taylor Swift on the side, I think that yeah. uh, the Chiefs will make it happen in the end. They've been a hot team the past month, Kansas City, and so uh, often you, you do well by uh, siding with the hot team. Brandon, thanks very much. We appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate you having me, Tyler. You bet, man. Uh, coming up, Google revamping its AI offerings but leaving out a key business segment. Will it be enough to keep up with the competition, or is it a little too little too late? That is next. Google's Bard is now Gemini, the search giant, renaming the chat box after the AI model powering it and uh, also announcing a paid subscription for access to a more advanced version of it. Deidre Bosa breaks down that news in today's Tech Check. Hi, Dee. Hey, Tyler. Yeah, that's right. So no more Bard, no more Duet AI. It's all going to be Gemini, and it's going to be everywhere that Google is, on your mobile, in your Gmail, even as a toggle in Google search itself. But it doesn't address this bigger question, and that is, Will Gemini replace or will it supplement Google? Will we go from Googling something to Geminiing it? And will that be as lucrative? That last part 
especially not so clear. So Senator Pichai, he's really hedging here. He's creating an alternative, not a replacement, because he sees that the chatbots are coming. But one of the criticisms is that Google hasn't been bold enough, hasn't moved fast enough. And this may be another example. I mean, it's not pulling a Facebook slash meta. It's not changing its name from Google to Gemini or, and this comes from executive producer Mark Gilbert, Alphabet to AI-phabet, right? That would be a bold move, the likes of Zuckerberg. But it's not doing that here. It's putting Gemini everywhere, but it's not replacing Google. All right, Deidre, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Deidre Bosa. Coming up, shares of Enphase slightly lower today, but up about 14% so far this week, despite yesterday's disappointing results. The CEO calling a bottom in the stock and telling CNBC that solar will start to recover in the second quarter as utility rates rise and interest rates fall. And our strategist says that outside move on an earnings miss is actually a good sign for the stock market. Where he's buying is next. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. We're sitting just points away from 5,000 on the S&P 500. Our next guest says the rally still has legs and will broaden out from here. Joining us now with where he's buying is Steve Auth, Chief Investment Officer of Equities at Federated Hermes. Steve, welcome back. Good to have you with us. You have a price target on the S&P 500 of 5,200. That's about 200 points from here. Not a lot of gain for the rest of the year. Are you tempted to, are you tempted to up it based on what's happened so far in 2024? He attempted to, Tyler. You know, we set that target, you know, way back in the third quarter last year and, um, you know, did get a lot of it early on, uh, even in the fourth quarter of this year. So I've been getting a lot of questions about that. And what I've been telling our investor base is, I think a little bit longer term here. Um, certainly the market's a little overheated short term. And yeah, I don't know. We we could end higher than 5,200. I, I kind of like to look out three years. Um, there's a lot of talk about the big run we've had. We only just uh, three weeks ago crossed over the old high of the S&P. So from our perspective, the bull market has just started. We've got earnings. You know, we didn't come through an environment here where the economy is decelerating a little bit, but it's in a kind of not too hot, not too cold environment for the Fed. The Fed is pivoting. Earnings just started to resume growth after a one-year earnings recession. We've got, you know, earnings going up to 300 a share on the S&P by uh, 2026, uh, 2025, we're at 275. That may sound like a lot, but the nominal GDP of the U.S., which is what um, S&P 500 companies eat, is going to be up about 40 percent off 2019 um, by 2025. So I think the earnings numbers that we're using are pretty conservative. So you've got a pretty good setup for stocks. you got earnings resuming growth, the Fed pivoting to lower rates. We're not where the market is. You know, we've got like three cuts right. this year, but still a cuts ahead of us. And um, it's only the leading stocks that have broken the market through the old highs. So we're thinking it's a time for the market to broaden out. Um, and in, in our way of thinking, Tyler, to get back to sort of your original question, there's lots of stocks that can go up more than 5%, which is what we've got left against our 5,200 mm -hmm. for this year. Uh, and the overall markets still just sort of crawl along, which is kind of how we see it. So we're looking for laggards. Um, we're tilted towards value names in particular. 
We like the regional banks here. They've gotten another whack on the head over this very idiosyncratic situation. Yeah, let's talk um, about that a little bit, if we might, Stephen. I should point out that your 2025 target on the S&P is 6,000. Uh, so that's 6, what? 000. Yeah, 6,000. That's another 20% yeah. from here. Let's talk about those regional banks in light of the NYCB uh, uh, debacle, I guess you can call it. Why do you like selected um, banks like First Horizon, PNC, uh, and others? Right. So those are the, the larger regional banks. And if anything, they're going to see flows move towards them, um, you know, because of the PN, uh, the uh, NYCB debacle. Right. Uh, they've got better, more professional management teams. We never let, you know, I shouldn't, I don't want to diss to NYCB, but, you know, they've got very strong management teams um, yeah. and they're cheap. I mean, First Horizons trading at one time's price to tangible book. I mean, if you look it up on, on your machine, it'll look 0.8, but we look at tangible book. It normally trades at 1.5 times. It's 40% off its pre-bear uh, market mm -hmm. high. We're not thinking we're going to get all the way back there this year, but those are areas. Uh, large right. Cap Farm is another one uh, that we think has yeah. legs. Yeah, you like Santa uh, Fe and in that group. Santa Fe, among yeah, others. We're we're a little bit up against the uh, end of the hour, Steve. So I'm going to have to have to call time out there. But thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate it, my friend. Thank you, Father. Steve Auth uh, joining us today, and that does it for the exchange. Coming up on Power Lunch, shares of Arm up as much as 60 percent today after its guidance blew past expectations. We'll dig into tech's AI spending spree. Dom Chu is getting ready. We'll see you in just a minute. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.